0: There are several known traditional variations of the Greek story of Prometheus, and one of the most popular though, Prometheus, a titan who tricks Zeus, one of the gods and thus one of the descendants of titans the order of creation here going from earth and heaven, then titans, then gods, with humans being all the way down at the bottom of the power and importance pyramid. Prometheus the titan tricked Zeus, the god, into accepting bones as a sacrifice from humans rather than meat, which is why old-school adherents to that particular faith would offer the bones of their meal to the gods as a sacrifice, rather than the meat, which they were allowed to keep for themselves pretty convenient for the humans, but less so for Zeus. Prometheus was punished for this act, or rather, the humans were punished for his support of them by Zeus, who vengefully withheld the quote-unquote means of life, which was fire from humanity. Prometheus, the story goes, then steals fire from Zeus and brings it down to Earth, sharing it with humans, which earns him a significant punishment from the gods. He's chained to a rock, and cursed to have an eagle eat his liver every day, the liver growing back each morning so that he can suffer the agony of having it eaten again and again forever. Another version of this story, also a quite popular one, is that in Revenge for Prometheus giving human beings fire, Zeus has Hephaestus, the god of craftsmanship and blacksmithing, but also heat and fire and volcanoes and other such smelting-related things. He had him build a woman to send out amongst men. The implication being that men are good and pure and noble and rational by default, and that it is the introduction of cunning and clever and curious and generally misbehaving women that sets humanity down the wrong path. The prejudices in this story are fairly overt at times. But basically, to get these women out amongst all of the men to corrupt them, Zeus tricks Prometheus's brother Epimetheus, into accepting this handcrafted woman as a gift. And even though Prometheus told his brother to watch out for gifts from the gods, because they would probably be seeking revenge for his whole fire-stealing episode, Epimetheus could not resist the woman that was offered. And this woman, Pandora, brought a jar with her down to earth after Epimetheus let her in. And when she opened this jar, out flew all of the ills humanity must deal with like pain and disease and worry and grief. The connection between fire and knowledge, and knowledge and societal ills, is not limited to Greek mythology. Cultures around the world abound with stories that connect the development of fire with all the bad stuff that's ever happened to humans. From death and devastation to the concerns of the modern world, those concerns emerging as soon as we ceased to be carefree wanderers, and began to build what became known as civilization. Which is literally wrong, of course. We've always faced problems and psychological ailments of various kinds, but it's not entirely wrong in the sense of connecting one development with another. Fire, after all, is thought to have been the source of humanity's early brain development in the Pleistocene Epoch, a period often referred to as the Ice Age, which lasted from about 2.5 million to 11,700 years ago. It was then that the roasting of plants and animals provided our species with a massive influx of new calories and vitamins and minerals that were previously inaccessible, certain foods previously having been undigestible. This nutritional content locked away. This higher quality diet, compared to any other animal that has ever lived on the planet, changed our biology over the course of generations. And around that same time, we began to build new things. Fire gave us the ability to construct new types of shelters, to build homes, to craft new tools, to merge natural materials and create new synthetic materials. We had always been aware of fire before this point. Many animals are. We've seen chimpanzees and birds of prey and wolves and coyotes all make use of wildfires sparked by lightning strikes to predict where prey will be fleeing, and thus... To utilize fire as a tool for hunting, waiting for their meals to come to them. But then we gained the ability to make fire ourselves, and an understanding of how to keep it going, how to use it to make new things. To early humans, that must have seemed like taking a power held by the sky, bringing it down to earth, and wielding it like gods. The traditional association of fire with power and knowledge, and even the spark of life, then, makes a lot of sense. Before the development of these tool making and home building capabilities, and before the larger and more powerful brains that developed as a result of those abundant nutrients to which we suddenly had access, our understanding of history, the passing of time, of knowledge being passed between generations, was insubstantial. After the emergence of all of these things, though, their emergence marked by the parallel harnessing of this magical tool from the sky, we began to remember. We began to document, we began to settle down in ways that allowed us to make use of other innovations, like formalized animal domestication and agriculture, and other things that we almost certainly had an inkling about previously, but could not implement on scale before we had the capabilities granted to us by this new power source. And along with the development of our brains and societies came what we commonly think of as civilization. And with civilization came new social dynamics, new concepts like ownership and heredity and warfare, priorities predicated not on bare survival, but things like conquest, on social dynamics and invented power structures, increased understanding of the world around us, of ourselves, and of the complexity of our emerging social world led to new worries, new fears, new hopes that could be quashed. The spark of life that we'd been granted arrived around the same time as the opening of Pandora's box. The plucking of knowledge from the tree leading to the death of innocence and the emergence of evil. This is a concept that exists in the traditions and myths and faiths of the Ekwe of Nigeria and the aborigines of Australia and the Cherokee of North America. The Norse god Loki stole fire to bring it to humanity in Norway, just as Prometheus stole it for the humans in Greece indicating that this is probably a revelation, a world-changing event that was captured in told and retold and retold again stories. Stories that emerged independently around the world over and over and over again throughout history as human beings began to mentally wake up to remember and to build the foundations of a wildly imperfect civilization. What I'd like to talk about today is how fire, after first having helped humanity build civilization, has also, at times, challenged the existence of that civilization. And how today, wildfires are destroying what we have built, using it and other power sources with newfound intensity. <music> You are listening to Let's know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from National Geographic, and it's entitled, "Wildfires Pose New Threats as Homes Burn: Releasing Toxic Fumes." This is one of many fairly representative articles I could have started with in looking at this topic, but I think it's particularly appropriate because right there in the headline, it points at something that's new about the recent wildfires that have been menacing cities around the world over the past several years in particular. Namely, that the fires are worsening, and as a consequence are bypassing barriers, natural and man-made, to enter new areas that are optimized for humans, not for fire prevention. Before we get into the larger meta-issue of wildfires though, let's talk for a moment about what wildfires are, why they happen, and our experience with them in the past. Our earliest fossil records of fire, that is, the earliest evidence we have of fire existing on the surface of the planet, stems from the emergence of widespread land based flora, plants that grow on land, during the Middle Ordovician period. Fire began to show up on the surface of the planet because of those plants which pumped oxygen into the atmosphere, and as soon as the percentage of oxygen reached 13%, Wildfires were chemically capable of occurring. And in fact, we see the first fossil record recorded wildfire as having taken place about 420 million years ago, with the first examples of charcoalified plants discovered in modern day Wales. And from that point forward, with a few blip like exceptions, we see regular layers of charcoalified plants in the fossil record. The emergence of dominant plant species like grasses, which spread like wildfire around the planet after evolving to be fairly resilient and able to grow just about anywhere, that increased the prevalence of wildfires because it meant naturally occurring sparks would be more likely to come into contact with burnable fuel rather than just sparking and then disappearing as would otherwise be the case. Wildfire prominence has ebbed and flowed over the millennia, mostly as a consequence of how much oxygen has been in the air. There were fewer wildfires during the late Permian and the Triassic periods, for instance, purportedly because of a decrease in oxygen levels during those periods, but also due to the relative flammability of plants in fire-prone regions. Some plants have, at times, evolved thicker bark which helped them to resist fire, allowing them to perpetuate and propagate and even act as natural barriers to wildfire spread at times. Other plants, though, and this is particularly true of plants in wildfire-prone areas even today, have evolved to work with the fires rather than fight them. Ceritini refers to an adaptation that allows seed plants to respond to environmental triggers, usually reproducing based on things happening around them, like a change in climate or moisture or at times when a fire occurs. There are many different mechanisms by which this cause-and-effect relationship can trigger, but one example is found in trees that store their seeds in a seed bank, like a fruit or a cone, that is sealed by resin, which is opened up by fire, the resin melting in the heat. In some cases, this fruit or cone containing the seeds will require a multi-stage opening process, with fire unsealing the seeds, but then some kind of moisture like rain being required, followed by a period of dryness, which causes the cone to expand and contract respectively, levering the seeds from their now open pods and dispersing them into soil in which there is abundant water from the rain and which has recently been filled with fresh nutrients from the destruction wrought by the fire. Fairly ideal growing conditions. Some plants only sometimes make use of this process, while others cannot reproduce without it. In either case, this demonstrates that in some regions, wildfires, though immensely destructive in many ways, are also part of a natural cycle of destruction and creation. The next generation of many species never coming into existence if that periodic spark never inflames a bit of leaf or dry grass, spreading a conflagration across potentially large expanses of land before the blaze is snuffed out once more due to rain or a lack of fuel. The takeaway here then is that while they may seem like the end of the world, even to the creatures that live within these fire-prone regions, wildfires are also quite natural, cyclical, and even necessary to the thriving of some habitats. The trouble we're running into today is like with so many other cyclical natural aspects of nature, because of the climate shift that we're experiencing at what would seem to be a dramatically increased rate of change because of human activities that we've only recently realized the full extent of, that change is amplifying the power of these weather events, including wildfires, their scope and scale. And that increase is allowing these tides of fire to make their way into previously safe areas because there's more fuel shifting weather patterns and human-focused ecosystem adjustments that favor our needs but accidentally upset the natural ecosystem balance in the trade-off. Now, like with hurricanes and floods and other disasters that are becoming more disastrous each year, this does not mean that wildfires were created by humans or that they're likely to become all-day-everyday issues anytime soon. Hurricanes are setting new records each year, and the range of hurricane season in which they're most likely to occur is expanding. But that does not mean that hurricanes will pop up out of nowhere. They're still predicated on fairly well-understood variables, and those variables have not changed in fundamental nature. They've merely been adjusted so that stronger, bigger, longer-lasting storms are more common across more of the year. The same is true of wildfires. They have not fundamentally changed. They've just been augmented by that broader change in climate and by our tweaking of the landscape, so that we humans are more capable of living in these fire-prone places and able to grow things there, be protected from dangerous wildlife, more comfortable in our homes. But these adjustments, some of them anyway, can also add to the regularity with which wildfires occur and their scale when they do. Many wildfires, for instance, are sparked by careless smokers dropping their still-smoldering cigarette butts to the ground, failing to properly extinguish them. And then walking away. That smoldering butt then spreads to a bit of dry grass, then to a bit of wood, and pretty soon half a county has been burned to the ground. Other wildfires, and this has been especially true recently, are sparked by electrical infrastructure, power lines that spark, providing the catalyst for a fire in water-depleted regions. That water depletion can be caused by human-amplified climate change, but it can also be the result of draining a region's aquifers, lowering the water table, and thus sending more reliable water to nearby homes and factories, which is great for humans, but in turn diminishing the amount of water to which local plants have access, creating an artificial drought or amplifying a naturally occurring one. It's estimated that about 90% of wildfires these days are started by humans. So fireworks setting something alight, campfires left unattended, smoldering cigarette butts, sparking or downed power lines, and also intentional arsons, people setting fire to things, either with the intention of seeing them spread or with the intention of burning a piece of paper or their enemy's house, only to have that smaller fire spread out of their control. The remaining 10% of wildfires today are mostly set by lightning or lava. The year 2019 has not been as active numerically as 2018 when it comes to wildfires. There were 52,080 wildfires around the world from January 1st, 2018 through November 22nd of that same year, and only 46,706 during the same date range in 2019. But, and this is a big but, more of the wildfires in 2019 took place in densely populated areas. So while there were more wildfires in general in 2018, there were more that required the evacuation of a great many people this year compared to last year. 2017 was way bigger than both 2018 and 2019, though, with 71,499 wildfires, and 2016 was bigger than both 2018 and 2019, but smaller than 2017, coming in at 65,575. Again, though the number of fires while not completely arbitrary because it means more chances for some of those fires to become truly massive is less important than the size of the fires and where they take place 2016 through 2019 saw about 5.4 million 10 million 8.8 million and 4.6 million acres of land burn respectively but 85 people died in just one fire in 2018 And over 200,000 people had to be evacuated in 2019. So there are different metrics by which we might judge the destructiveness of these fires. And many of those metrics show these fires growing increasingly destructive of human infrastructure and human lives in recent years. And those are just the human metrics. Every single wildfire kills thousands or millions of animals and plants. And some, like the wildfires currently burning, as I record this, in the Amazon rainforest, which is not the type of forest that benefits from wildfires, by the way, have resulted in about 2.25 million acres of ecosystem loss in a vital planetary carbon sink, meaning it's housing a bunch of CO2 that would otherwise be in the atmosphere, and which is released into the atmosphere by these burnings. And it's a place that is one of the most biodiverse ecosystems on the planet, meaning there are gobs of different creatures and plants densely populating this area, and thus the potential for extinctions within the various microecosystems in the Amazon is much higher relative to ecosystems of a comparable size elsewhere. The burning of the Amazon is the result of slash-and-burn deforestation techniques being used by farmers and cattle ranchers in Brazil, who see the forest as a hindrance to them planting more crops and raising more cattle. This method of land clearance is technically illegal, but that illegality is seldom enforced, which means it's frequently used and frequently on a scale that allows the fires they set for land clearance to spin out of control, leaving the farmers and ranchers with the cleared land they wanted, but also clearing huge swaths of rainforest beyond their property boundaries, which, it would seem, is an acceptable loss to these farmers and ranchers and for the current government of Brazil but which is considered to be a tragedy on a massive scale by most other governments around the world and essentially the whole of the scientific community in Brazil and elsewhere. Brazil and its neighboring countries are not the only regions currently on fire and trying, but often failing, to get those fires under control. Over 2.5 million acres of Australia are on fire as I record this, with officials concerned that some of the blazes in New South Wales could merge into what are called megafires, individual wildfires that are large enough to themselves, individually, cover over 100,000 acres of land. Locals in Adelaide were recently advised to stay indoors due to the particulates in the air, carried by smoke from the nearby fires, And hundreds of people have been treated for breathing problems due to the air quality exceeding officially designated hazardous levels, which in some cases refers to certain toxic or otherwise harmful chemicals being burned and made airborne, but which in this case refers to an air index ranking, which indicates a level of particulates in the air that can physically harm people who inhale them, and which generally means a pollutant standards index or PSI ranking of over 300. That's what hazardous means in this case, which in practice means that there are enough microscopic bits of detritus in the air that we breathe that even healthy individuals without any respiratory ailments can be harmed and have trouble breathing, perhaps even long term, if they inhale too many of these particulates. These fires also, somewhat famously, have led to the destruction of vast swaths of koala habitat, leading to some claims that the koala has become functionally extinct. With that term being called out by other experts who worry that such a claim may cause people to lose interest in the health and safety of an animal that has already been seemingly declared dead. In reality, there are still plenty of koalas, and they don't look likely to go extinct anytime soon, but huge chunks of their habitats have disappeared and continue to be threatened by future wildfires. And a large number of koalas have already been killed by these fires. So that was enough for a koala interest group. On the eve of local elections, to write up some stats with some alarming headlines, probably in order to drum up support for increased fire prevention and climate change related efforts. Of course, the underlying issue here, in Australia and elsewhere, but in Australia perhaps more than most countries, is that of drought. Climate records based on substantial data show that the country has experienced a severe drought every 18 years or so since the beginning of available data. But in recent decades, marked decreases in rainfall have resulted in more severe and regular droughts, especially since 1994, but with a very serious so-called millennium drought lasting from most of 2000 until late 2010. Australia is currently in the midst of another ongoing drought, which began in 2017 and which has been exacerbated by consistent record-breaking high temperatures and an increase in bushfires wildfires that take place in more rural parts of the country in 2019 those thought to be bigger and more destructive than usual because of the prolonged drought and the impact it's had on the country as a whole but particularly some usually wetter rainforest regions which have become drier than usual and thus more susceptible to fires And as I mentioned earlier, these sorts of conditions are especially non-ideal for rainforests, which tend not to be adapted to survive fires. Fires in California are especially bad this year as well, though that's primarily because more of them are taking place closer to heavily populated areas, which compounds many of the deleterious effects of wildfires. First, it means more dislocation, with people scrambling to flee the fires, which causes all kinds of travel-related issues, but also impacts the infrastructure of the local area, which is left largely unattended, and that of nearby areas that face the brunt of impact from all of these new people fleeing into town, drinking the water, using the facilities, and potentially accidentally sparking more fires as a consequence of their presence and behaviors. Second, it means more homes and other human-made infrastructure burning, which is quite a different thing from forests and other plant life burning, due to all the plastics and varnishes and synthetic chemicals, in general, that enter the air, which aren't always more harmful than fine particulates from the burning of natural things, but which can be, and that can lead to increased harm for humans and animals and plants, but also for the air and the ozone layer and the atmosphere. Third, more infrastructure also often means more fuels and other combustibles, which can dramatically and quite quickly expand the size and strength of a wildfire. What starts out as a slow-moving, grass-burning fire can reach a gas station or some cars or gas-filled pipes and literally explode, expanding to encompass an entire neighborhood or city in a very short time, confounding efforts to contain it and causing far more damage to that region, but also to anyone nearby due to all the chemicals it casts into the air than it otherwise might cause. And finally, more people means a greater likelihood of people not leaving their homes, either because they fear looters and thieves stealing their stuff because they don't want to go for whatever reason and suspect it's all much ado about nothing, or because they are unable to go which is often the case with the elderly or with those that have some kind of physical disability that makes getting around less feasible or impossible without some kind of outside assistance. This, in turn, can lead to more injuries and deaths, and even for those who are not consumed by fire, because the air that they breathe filled with chemicals and particulates can harm them in the long term, leading to respiratory ailments and cancers even many years in the future. Wildfires in California get a relatively large amount of press because it's a very wealthy area, even for the United States, but also because of the density of media entities located thereabouts. Just like many films and TV shows take place in LA because of logistics and prestige, so too do disasters taking place nearby get more press because of convenience and relative adjacency. There are similar things happening elsewhere, though, in less reported upon parts of the world that are arguably even more impactful locally and worldwide, and which therefore warrant greater attention, I think. Reports from the country's Forestry and Environment Ministry have said that, already, by September of 2019, the fires burning in Indonesia have emitted more greenhouse gases than all of the fires burning in the country in 2018 combined. The 2019 fires, up to that point, had consumed about 2.12 million acres of land, And though the area was comparably smaller, the emissions were twice as large as those coming out of the burning Amazon rainforest, due in large part to the nature of the land in Indonesia, which is covered in peat, a bog-like swampy landform that absorbs and stores CO2, but which then releases that CO2 back into the air when burned. It's a non-petroleum type of fossil fuel. To put that level of emissions into further perspective, The amount of CO2 released from just these fires in Indonesia from January until September 2019 is a little over one-tenth as much as the entire United States releases across all industries and use cases in an entire year. That's a lot. And like in the Amazon, plantation owners, the makers of palm oil, mostly are being blamed for these blazes. The fires reportedly set so they can clear land for future use. Mixed ecosystems are not good for plantation-style cultivation, and they want to get rid of everything that they can so they can start fresh, planting a profitable monoculture of trees and getting rid of the rest, including all of that annoying peat. These fires have recently become the source of international conflict as the ever-present cloud of pollutant-laden smoke from these wildfires, which previously left only the country's capital, Jakarta, and some other nearby cities and towns suffering, has now drifted over to Malaysia and Singapore and other portions of Southeast Asia, in some cases resulting in the canceling of school and work, so that citizens in these other countries could stay indoors and avoid becoming ill from these clouds of border-crossing hazardous smoke. It's estimated that almost a million Indonesians have suffered from respiratory infections as a result of this smoke, and around 10 million children are at risk of developmental harm that can result from exposure to such pollutants when one's brain is still developing, and that these emissions put Indonesia in sixth place worldwide behind the United States, China, India, Russia, and Japan in terms of carbon emissions for 2019. And all of that resulted from 389,048 official wildfires, 11% of which started in plantation areas, and about 50% of which have happened in ostensibly protected peatland regions, which is especially alarming because peat, again, is made up of essentially concentrated CO2, and it burns for a very long time, which means that some of these fires could burn and burn and burn and maybe keep burning for years unless firefighters are able to get them controlled externally, which at the moment seems somewhat unlikely for both political and practical reasons. Ultimately, like every other natural disaster type that is currently increasing in strength and regularity, the extremes becoming more common, the chances of them occurring, changing as the atmosphere and the climate changes, we will need to figure out how to cope with wildfires of amplified scope and power, where these sorts of consequences will become the norm, eventually leaving huge portions of the planet borderline uninhabitable, and even those that are currently benefiting from these blazes, unable to profitably utilize the land that they've worked so hard to clear. To some, this means building better infrastructure so that blazes are less likely to impact human settlements, our cities and towns that are currently demolished every time a fire rolls through. It's possible that we could make more things fireproof, build homes that are less prone to burning, and electrical cables that are less prone to sparking. And that would go a long way toward keeping these natural disasters from becoming human disasters as well. But it's also vital that we figure out new methods of agriculture, as a lot of what's happening right now in terms of human-amplified trout, and in terms of creating regions that burn quickly due to monoculture and the widespread clearing out of natural fire buffer zones, is a consequence of large-scale agricultural and ranching methods. Things that are arguably necessary currently because of the amount of food that we need to produce each year to feed the species but which could quite likely be phased out in favor of more technologically sophisticated and increasingly urban based methods of producing such food on scale which would allow more of these regions to grow naturally providing a buffer and making it more likely that when fires do occur they don't spread in the same way and they're largely beneficial to the local ecology. Of course, it's also possible, and according to some experts a little more likely, that changing the way we integrate with the natural world more holistically would be even more effective, figuring out ways to avoid amplifying droughts and accidentally starting fires in the first place by being more efficient with how we manage resources and implementing better regulations for how and where we utilize monoculture and build homes. This would hopefully, if thought through and scaled up, reduce the amplification effect we have on this category of disaster, so that although there would still be wildfires in areas that are optimized for wildfires, we wouldn't inflate them to dangerous scales, and we wouldn't expand their range beyond what the local ecosystems can endure. We'd still have fires, in other words, but they wouldn't be tragic. They would just be one more natural thing that we can safely watch from a distance. What would be required to make this happen, though, is greater balance. And though there are a lot of experiments and plans being thought up and implemented, each imagining different ways to make better balance happen in the spaces where we humans and our societies interface with nature, most of them are still quite speculative. And because of the economic and political incentives that are in place right now, it's difficult to say how many of them will actually become realities and at what pace. There are a lot of benefits to the way that we do things now, and a lot of reasons that it would be difficult to move away from that. And we struggle against the realities and benefits of that status quo, just as much as we struggle against the consequences that manifest as a result of that status quo. So it's a good bet that for the foreseeable future, like the strengthening floods and hurricanes and tornadoes and blizzards and seemingly every other type of disaster that we've ever experienced... Wildfires will also continue to be an issue, and probably an ever-strengthening one, until we can figure out how to tweak the variables that are causing them to strengthen, becoming global disasters that negatively impact both natural systems and human systems, including the humans who are intentionally and unintentionally sparking them in the first place. (laughs) The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News by Clint Watts. I was actually searching for another book on disinformation and misinformation and social media strategy related to those things when I found this book, so I didn't know much about it going in, and it turns out that the author is someone who has had ongoing relationships with Pretty horrible people on the internet via social media. And he conducted these relationships as a means of gathering information about these people, about where they could be found, about where they might be apprehended. And he was working not directly in collaboration with, but to the benefit of, intelligence agencies in the United States and elsewhere. So he was working as kind of a self declared freelancer, but with the intention of these efforts ultimately benefiting people who were trying to hunt down very dangerous terrorists, for instance. So there's a bit of narrative here, some of the story of him and his adventures in this world coming out, but also most interesting to me, the types of things that you have to consider when working in this space, when dealing with very dangerous people in particular, but also the kinds of information that you can glean from people and their social media usage if you are paying attention to such details and they are not. Over a long enough timeline, I think it's safe to say, most of us will give away something that we do not intend to because of our social media activities, even if our life depends on us staying hidden or hiding some other bit of information. The right person with the right knowledge using these tools can extract a great deal of information that we do not wish to share. So if you'd like to learn more about that world, here's some interesting stories coming from somebody who knows what they're doing within this space consider picking up a copy of Messing with the Enemy by Clint Watts. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. If you're enjoying what I'm doing here on the podcast, you might also enjoy my weekly news analysis column, which you can subscribe to at understandery.com. And you can feel free to say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm at Colin is my name on most of those, though it's just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.